Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hi, this is Shaheen Shan, author of Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. And if you want to build valuable relationships, you should be listening to Build Your Network with my good friends, Travis Schapel and Eric Skorzynski. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. Shaheen, welcome to the show. Oh, so honored to be on, Eric. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to get to talk with you. And your story is a really interesting one. There's a lot of layers to it. But I want to go back to just early life for you. I know you uh, moved from Iran when you were five years old. Tell me a little bit about those earliest memories and kind of what your early childhood was like. Yeah, great question. So we were immigrants coming to this country from Iran. You know, there was a revolution in the 70s and my folks basically just had to pack everything that we have. And, you know, literally, I remember running to the plane. So we narrowly escaped. Not everybody did. And we managed to somehow via Europe land in the United States as refugees. Hmm. And, you know, we came here like a bunch of other Iranians kind of hoping to, you know, make a better life for ourselves in a freer society. Yeah. 
I, I'm always fascinated by kind of the, the immigrant story, like coming first generation American, and especially in a context like yours, like knowing the background of how you left. It wasn't this like, hey, where should we go? You know, let's let's move here and make a decision. Like it was survival mode. And I'm kind of curious, like growing up, did you feel that weight? Did you feel like this this kind of sense of survival? Or was it something where once you guys got settled in, it was like, here's our plan, here's what we want to do, and and kind of built on that? Yeah. You actually uh, remind me of that, uh, what is it, uh, Boy George song, uh, Culture Club, Every Day is Like Survival. That's a line from his song, uh, Love Culture Club, amazing band from the 80s, um, which I guess I'm starting to show my age. But <laughs> Yeah. You know, as an immigrant, every day is survival. Mm. And, you know, in the third world, every day is survival. It's not as comfortable it is, as it is here. And anybody who, you know, has traveled to places like India or Southeast Asia will attest to the fact that, you know, little things that we take for granted, easy transportation, you know, you know, just leaving your hotel or your house and, you know, going somewhere. These things that we really do take for granted here um, in these other countries are can be very challenging, especially if you are not just visiting with an, you know, open yeah. checkbook. So, you know, for, for me growing up in Iran, which, you know, really is a, a third world country, you know, was, was survival based and then moving out. Now you don't belong. So, you yeah. know, were pulled out of our country, right? My parents were Iranian Jews, so they were fearing that, you know, something would happen, you know, and they would be persecuted. So they they escaped Iran and, you know, we we moved and, you know, you just don't know. So as a small child, those times you you might not be fully cognizant of everything that's going on, but you catch the vibe. And, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, I've got a lot of friends who, you know, escaped other countries who, you know, I've got a, a close friend that came from Africa and I've got other friends that come from other parts of the world. You build this grit, you build this ability to be able to withstand whatever life throws your way hmm. by having these experiences. So there's there's something about them that really does toughen your skin. So so once you got here, I mean, your parents, they're they're working, they're trying to, were you an only child or did you have siblings? No, I had a little brother, yeah. Okay, so they're, they're working, trying to keep things moving. Did they have certain, do they have any pressure they put on you to excel and succeed? Or was it something where, you know, you were kind of left to your own a little bit to try to figure things out? Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, if anybody, you know, your audience doesn't know Persian Jewish families, <laughs> there is only one thing to be, and it is a doctor. Anything mm. else, you are completely subpar. And, you know, my dad, you know, came here, they didn't have any money. My mom didn't have any money. We basically had, you know, the clothes on our backs and a little bit of cash that they managed to, you know, get from family and friends to move here. And, you know, my dad took a job at a, at a shitty pizza place, you know, and, you know, they, they managed after five years of being here to buy a house in an area that, you know, just became up and coming when they moved there. And I remember we moved to this house and the deal was the guy was going to sell it for cheap because there was a bunch of Hare Krishnas that moved in. And this house had a, it was in this place called Pacific Palace. It had an Olympic sized pool. And nobody could get these Hare Krishnas to move out. They were chill, but they were like, you know, squatting in the backyard of this like big house and nobody could sell it because it was a commune of freaking Hare Krishnas. And I remember my mom and dad, you know, they were like, this is all we can afford. So we're going to buy this house. It was very cheap in those days. 
And I remember just seeing my mom bring them out, tons of food. And every day, my mom would go out there in the backyard. She'd be bringing them food. They'd be camped out. They'd be doing stuff. And she just, she was just literally killing them with kindness until finally yeah. one day, you know, they were like, hey, you guys are so nice. Everyone else tried to like kick us out and do all kinds of bad things. What do you guys want? And my mom said, look, you know, we, we want you guys to move on. And they did. And that's how, you know, our life in, in America, you know, started, but everybody else who was going to try to get that property was unable to successfully take it over because these folks were just moving in, you know, and they played their drums and they wore the little <laughs> things and, you know, they're in the fucking backyard and, you know, there's my mom bringing them out trays of food. And, no. you know, so, you know, I started to learn that, Hey, you know, if, if you know how to deal with people and if you can, can think outside the box that things are possible beyond what other people believe they are. Yeah. I mean, that story explains a lot of your story because I mean, that's been a, a lot of your journey has been thinking outside the box, being able to, to reach out to people, do things for companies that, you know, companies with massive teams struggle to do. When was the first time that you started really forging the path for yourself? Obviously, we're not here to talk about your medical career that your parents wanted you to uh, to take part in. So what was kind of your journey kind of coming out of high school? Did you have plans of going the medical school route or were you kind of like, I'm not into that. Like, that's not going to be it. I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's going to be something else. So good point. I had my midlife crisis at the tender age of 15. I was in high school, total fucking nerd. I was, you know, getting the shit kicked out of me every day um, because I was this little Iranian kid. I had a big mouth and big ideas and nobody liked that. I didn't look like the cool kids, didn't look like the football king and prom queen king, whatever those guys were. And, you know, I didn't belong. I really didn't. And they made it evidently clear. And my friends were my books. I read books like Think and Grow Rich. I read Augmentino. I read... Um, Dale Carnegie, whatever those old timey self-help books that I could get my hands on, I read and I decided I wanted to be successful. And I mm -hmm. realized that I was not going to be able to do that sticking around in a, you know, upcoming affluent part of LA where all the kids had money. And I, I hadn't eaten at a restaurant by the time I was 15. I mean, it was ninth grade. I was like, fuck, you can, you can go somewhere and they'll bring you whatever you want. Ex explain to me how that works again. Right. You mean it's not it's not my mom's burgers? This is you can go somewhere and they they bring you food. Okay, let's let's rewind. So that that was the mentality that I had. Right. We we lived in a poverty mentality. You know, we weren't super poor. I never wanted for for anything. You know, I was always fed. Always had clothes on my back. But you know, we didn't buy new clothes. We didn't you know we didn't really go out and do stuff. We didn't go on vacation. You know, it was always always my life. My dad ended up you know running a dry cleaners, and that's mm -hmm. kind of you know, where we were. And so I realized around that age, Eric, that this wasn't going to work out and I had to cut ties. So I bailed. I decided, you know, hey, didn't finish high school, dropped out at ninth grade and was like, dude, I'm going to go see what the world has to offer. And I just took off, cut all ties and, uh, you know, moved, you know, I was sleeping in couches, abandoned buildings, backseat of an old Lincoln Continental. And somehow I got involved in the rave scene. At that time, the, you know, which I think now they call the EDM scene. I'm not even sure they call them raves anymore, which was booming in the 90s. No. And I remember going to these clubs because they were fantastic. They would start late and they would go till the morning, which gave me an opportunity to hang out, meet some people. I would usually sneak in and then I could sleep behind the speakers. There was something about that droning, you know, trance-like music that just put me straight to sleep. You know, there was a shelter. Mm. I could wake up in the morning and, you know, go about my day. And it was fine. It was a safe environment. And I started watching the business 
of these underground clubs, of these underground raves. And there was something that I noticed, and that was that the people who were throwing the raves were disasters. They never made money. Hmm. I was looking at them going, oh my God, can you be a bigger loser? They never made money. They were usually some drug-addled music aficionado yeah. that just you know, couldn't you know, tie his shoes together. And then I thought, okay, well, it's got to be the music. The DJs are making the money. Nope. Mm -hmm. DJs were always disgruntled, hanging outside, waiting with their hands out for somebody to pay them. And the DJs always got stiff. So I thought, okay, it must be the location. It must be these buildings that are renting out. Nope. Most of them were break-ins. And mm -hmm. the ones that weren't, you know, they got a couple grand for the night. Those guys weren't making big money. And it usually was a big stress on the buildings. So who do you think, Eric, was making money at these rates? <laughs> Uh, drug dealers? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Tell them what he's won. I mean, I, I kind of cheated because I, I know your story. So, <laughs> but uh... Uh, fair enough. So that's right. So I noticed, you know, that there was guys just hanging out the door, every unsuccessful, successful rave, thousands of people, chill, cool as a cucumber, making money. And so at that time, the supply of ecstasy had gone down because it was a fairly complicated drug to manufacture mm -hmm. in comparison to other drugs, right? Speed, I don't know, you get a bunch of. Uh, allergy pills and cook them down, you get speed, you know, all these other drugs, fairly simple to produce in comparison. But MDMA, methyldioxymethamphetamine, was a fairly difficult drug to synthesize. Most of it was coming from labs in Europe. And the DEA had, had cracked down pretty hard after the uh, 1980s. And by the yeah. 1990s, the supply was drying out. So, of course, in a fit of impossibility, I thought to myself, what if, uh, you know, I could make a pill that was legal, herbal, and didn't hurt anybody, and that we could sell at the raves. And so I went about doing that, and I did it, right? First, it was like, you know, 10 goof-filled balls because I didn't have the machine to fill capsules. I didn't have the 500 bucks it took to buy that machine where you fill it by hand. So, you know, and I hired some guy in Chinatown, super nice herbal guy, didn't speak very much English, and he made me this batches of goo, and we would roll them into balls as close to pills as we could get. We'd fill the baggies. And I walked up to the first drug dealer I saw at the club, you know, and I told him, I said, hey, dude, why don't you sell these? And he said, get the fuck out of here. What are you doing? And I said, last I checked, you're out of real drugs. So your choices are stand here and, you know, polish the doorknob or, you know, give something new a try. And I said, look, and if it doesn't sell, you don't pay me. And he was like, all right, all right, let me see. And, you know, pretty soon people in the club took it. It worked, which was amazing. And they loved it. Sure. They had to chug down 20 goo filled black balls, but we fixed that in time. We changed it into just five tiny pills. And it went from, you know, that guy became one of our biggest distributors. He quit illegal trade altogether, got in office, you know, cleaned himself up. He had a kid. It was like he was living, living his best life. And we expanded to 10 drug dealers, to 100, to 1,000, to 10,000, to 100,000. And we were everywhere. We were global. And then one morning, I woke up, walked into my office, realized I had over 200 employees. I had employed the majority of Venice Beach. Everybody in Venice knew us or worked for us. And we rented every empty building that was available in Venice in those days. And I got the news, you know, because I was doing interviews, you know, by this time, you know, let's say I was close to 18 years old. And every single day I was on Nightline, Montel Williams, Oprah was calling. I was in every LA Times, New York Times, LA Weekly, every publication wanted me on. I was the it kid in the moment. And I got the news that we broke a billion dollars in sales. Now, Eric, this is pre-internet, pre-Silicon Valley, a billion dollars in sales. 
There was no fucking social media, no Facebook. There was none of that stuff to promote this shit. We had, we had created a distribution system that nobody had ever seen before and dominated an entire industry. And I realized a couple things in that moment. First thing I realized was that distribution is the key to everything. And I write about this in my book, Billion, that's going to be coming out in a few months. Maybe by the time people listen to your podcast, they'll know. The second thing that I realized is that I had no fucking clue how much money a billion dollars was. I literally didn't know. And I couldn't Google. We didn't have smartphones in those days. And I was like, fuck, somebody better tell me how much a billion dollars is because I'm about to go on CNN and some dude's going to ask me and I'm not going to fucking know how much a billion dollars is. And, you know, people calm me down and, you know, they, they explain to me, you know, that that's not what they're going to ask me. They wanted to know about this long haired kid who's running this billion dollar plus organization. And it was a, it was a wild ride, you know, from there, you know, the government came after us. We had big pharma come after us. We had, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of uh, lawsuits of people suing us here and there. And it was a a crazy ride that, you know, I've got a a podcast now called Billion, How I Became King of the Thropo Cult, and another one called Hack and Grow Rich, where we we talk about all these different crazy, uh, crazy things. But we had at some stage the Japanese mafia, the Yakuza coming after us. And, you know, here I was, a, a, a teenager, completely out of my depth running yeah. this company. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of my next question is, how are you alive? Because uh, when you when you look at the story, and obviously it's a big part of it, is that you had the DEA watching you. You had Big Pharma coming after you. You had the drug dealers in the area that you're essentially, I, I mean, you're pretty much the only drug dealer in history that's cleaning up the streets because everyone's getting out of the illegal stuff. And so, I mean, did you... Did it get really sketchy for you at times? Like, did you ever feel like I better watch my back and be careful where I go? Like, or did you, was it that youth and just that, like, I got this, like, we're good. Yeah. So this is, this is interesting. So I think to answer that question, you, you have to take a, a, a deeper look into my mentality. of that. Hmm. So when I made my first 10,000 bucks, I had a backpack inside that backpack was everything that I owned. Up until a few years ago, I still had that same backpack. When I made my first 10,000 bucks, I bought a new pair of shoes because I thought, you know what? If this all fucking goes to dust, if I burn all of this and this was a fluke and I make nothing after this, at least I'll have a good pair of shoes. And that's what I did. And I had them tied. I never wore them. I had them tied to the backpack and like ready to go at any moment. And I think it's that mentality that carried me through to today, to what I do, in that when you start from nothing, you have nothing to lose. And it's that mentality for me that has given me the grit, the drive, and the ambition to continue because it could never get worse than zero. Yeah. you know, or, or less than zero that I came from. I, I recall I was actually in debt at that time. Mm-hmm. And there were times, you know, I, I talk about them in my book where, you know, I was flown in a private jet to Tokyo to meet with the head of the Japanese Yakuza, you know, and there was events like that where I didn't know if I was coming out of that meeting. There were times in Los Angeles where we were try, you know, people tried to shake us down from the police to, you know, small time uh, drug dealer operations to Beverly Hills businessmen who tried to shake us down using thugs and lawyers, a combination they're in. 
Yeah. So it's, it's a wild ride, you know, because when you're, you're young and you have no business experience, no schooling, and, you know, don't have a direct mentor, which I did not at that time, you know, people come to take advantage of you. Yeah. So, you know, it, looking back, I think to myself, you know, the value of the mentor is, is really uh, incredible. As is, you know, having a mastermind, having a group um, of, you know, guys or gals that are looking out for your best interest. Yeah, I, I definitely want to talk about the mentor side because that is an interesting element that you're bringing up and it's definitely something I want to dive into. But you also kind of revealed something about your personality that I think is really interesting because you kind of have the dichotomy of, you, you keep talking about thinking outside the box, growing your, you know, doing things that nobody else is going to do, taking these big risks essentially to to try to move forward. But then also that idea of like, okay, I have $10,000, I'll buy shoes. If everything goes to the ground, you know, I'm good. So, I mean, was a lot of that fueled from kind of the early childhood memories going like, okay, we can lose everything. Like that's there. So that makes you a little bit more conservative. And then what what gives you, because this is something we, we just posted a TikTok with Patrick Bet David just today. Yeah. And his story came from Iran, you know, had yeah. nothing, worked his way up. And the clip was him talking about, you know, making millions in the U.S. is easy. Got to follow a simple formula. He's like, it's America. This is easy. That's what that, that was the quote. TikTok full of comments, people that don't know his story going, oh, interview someone who actually started with nothing. Interview somebody that came from the ghetto and, and like worked their way out. And I guess, I guess my question is like, what gives you the drive? Like when you've seen everything get ripped away, when you, when you could be super pessimistic and say like, I'll work in a you know, I'll work in this store forever. I'll work in this pizza place forever. Like, what is it that gives you that advantage to say, I'm going to try something no one else is going to try. I know how bad it can get. I should be scared to take any massive action like this. Like what, what creates that? Because I see a lot of people that comment on these videos and these podcasts going, oh, that's not for everybody. If you're lucky, you lucked out, you did this. Like what makes you think it's possible? Like, what is it that, that gives you that that thing that says, I got to go out and just do this? Okay, good question. So a couple things. By the way, I love uh, Patrick Bed David and Value Team, awesome chef yeah. and great guy. So look, the first, the first component of that is that we live in a time where it pays more to sell success or how to make success than to actually succeed yourself in a mm. lot of cases. And that coupled with the current attention span of this current generation coming up, which is the TikTok generation. Yeah. TikTok nailed it. It's fucking, what is it? 15 seconds and then I'm swiping to the next video, yeah. right? People don't have fucking time. They want to see the Lamborghini, but they don't want to take the steps it takes to get to the Lamborghini and the yacht and the bikini babes chilling in the jacuzzi and all that, right? They want to go from A to Z. And there's an ample supply of dudes out there willing to fulfill that need. Now, that's not the need for the Lamborghini and the babes in the jacuzzi. It's the need for that dream. It's the need for, hey, it's, it's, I'm buying a lottery ticket. I've got a chance at that dream. Hmm. And that's all they're selling. The rest of it is vapid. 99.999% of the people who buy those courses, who do all those things that these gurus are proselytizing, do not succeed. And moreover, they, they don't even get past the first course. They don't mm. even get past the first page of the book. And there are real 
people out there who teach. I mean, I've got a course. I'm not here to, to sell it to yeah. anybody. I actually have a free course if anybody wants. I, I'm sure we could share a link where people can go. It's 100% free, how you learn how to you know, sell stuff and make money on Amazon. And I'm happy to share that with any of your listeners for free. But you know, the fact is that this whole mindset has us chasing shiny things, right? Mm. You want to fucking believe that you don't have to do shit. You yeah. buy his course, and you buy the fucking TikTok thing and uh, oh, knowledge. Yeah, I'm going to read 50 books a day. Bullshit. You know, Bruce Lee actually said, I'm not scared of the guy who knows 5,000 punches, something like this. I'm probably butchering the quote. I'm afraid of the guy who's practiced one punch 5,000 times. And it's true. I don't care if you've read 5,000 books. I'm, I'm more worried about the guy that's, that's taken that one book hmm. and mastered all the shit in there. And that's the real stuff, right? You do have to get out there and you do have to work hard. I was fucking relentless. I still am to this day. There are no limits. I don't have to work, right? I've had my success. I've made my millions. I, I own my real estate, my car collections, and my businesses. And I've got you know recurring revenue, all my Amazon businesses, fully successful, thousands of products all over the world. I don't have to do this. I can go on vacation with my family in perpetuity and be fine. But I'm driven and I do what I do. I pull all-nighters. I'm excited about this shit, right? This mm. is stuff that drives me. I am driven. That is a part of who you need to be if you want to succeed. You have to have that fire inside you and be willing to do whatever it takes to succeed. Now, you might not have to do everything it takes to succeed, but you have to be willing. That could mean like Elon Musk. Sleep on the fucking factory floor. Nobody gives a shit if you're the richest guy in the world. He sleeps on the fucking factory floor. They just pulled in and bought him a couch, poor guy, right? It, you know, Jeff Bezos, he had a fucking desk from Home Depot and four cinder blocks until, you know, five, six years ago until the guy got an office, right? Yeah. None of this stuff matters. You got to have tunnel fucking vision and then go at it with everything you have. And I will put it to you this way. Making money in America, making money anywhere is not easy, but it doesn't have to be a struggle, right? Money is just a side effect. And I learned this early on through one of my, my teachers, uh, a guy named uh, Stuart Wilde. He wrote this book called The Trick to Money is Having Some. Phenomenal guy, but this was a guy who came in early in the, in the New Age movement of the 1980s. And he was the guru to the gurus of the Deepak Chopras and the Wayne Dyers. This was the guy they all came to. Tony Robbins came to him. You know, all these guys came to him for advice on the metaphysics of money. And he kind of developed this philosophy about money. But his thing was that if you move towards money, like you're thirsty for it, and everything you do is, hey, man, I'm going to make a million bucks. I'm going to make 10 million bucks. I'm going to do this. It's just like a girl. It's going to move away from you. Mm. That's like seeing a super hot girl and going, oh, my God, I love you. I love your hair. And whew, you look good. And oh, those shoes and that dress. What are you doing later? You like food? Do you want to go out to eat? Right? That girl's going to be like, whoa, dude, dude, just chill. Right? Mm. But you play it cool. You work mm. on yourself. Right? You chase excellence. And then what happens is it all comes to you. And money much works the same way. And it did for me. I never chased money. You, I hit a billion dollars in revenue, Eric, an insane number at that time. I don't think any other company run by a kid had done that at that time. Mm. They were all big companies doing those kinds of numbers. And I didn't even know what a billion dollars was because I didn't give a fuck. It didn't matter. Yeah. I mean, I remember 
a time when I was sitting in my office, my dog, who was with me all the time, knocked over a pile of papers. I opened it up and there was a check for a million bucks from like six months ago that I had in fucking cash. It was just a check. Somebody had written me a check for a million dollars. And I remember thinking to myself, I, I got to deposit this fucking thing. Like I just, it, it just, I was so busy doing the work that I didn't even notice like the money's coming in. And that's how you have to be. You have to be relentless. And, you know, I, again, you know, I write about this in my book and talk about it on my uh, podcast, but you know, it, it's, it's, it's that type of thing where you are doing pull, where you allow these opportunities to come to you. You build your network, you work on yourself, you create discipline, right? I would get up at 4am every morning and go into the woods. I would go hiking. I don't have any money. So fucking what? Doesn't mean I can't wake up at 4 a.m. and do that. I would go dip in the ocean at 4 a.m. That costs no money. I could do that. I would constantly keep myself uncomfortable in a state of discomfort in order to remind myself of that discipline. And it felt fucking great. I was flying in those days. I was flying in the days before I had money. And the days I had money, it was the most incredible experience ever. Mm, yeah. So what was the drive then? I mean, I mean, obviously not the money, but uh, you know, you say, oh, I love the work. And I think, I think a lot of times we hear guys say that we hear, oh, I love the process, you know, love the, you know, G Gary Vee always talks about, you gotta love the hustle, you know, that sort of thing, you know, for someone who's sitting there going like, I'm struggling. Like if someone, if someone's sitting there listening, they're saying, I'm struggling to love the work, love the process, like love the grind, you know, doing those steps. And they're just thinking, man, I would just love to make some good money. Like I'd love to be able to not stress about this. Like, like, what would you say to them? Like, how do you develop or cultivate that mindset? Okay. So I coach a lot of young people and I've made a lot of millionaires. And I'll tell you, the first step is you have to change your mindset. Hmm. And that is from going to a needy mindset, all about me, 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 all those statements that you just made right now are all about me, 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 yeah. me, to a mindset of what am I going to produce that's going to be excellent in this world? And the second question is, how am I going to get it out into the world? Like, remember what I told you, the first thing that I realized, which is my most important lesson until today, is that the single most important thing that you can do is start with distribution first. You know how, like, you ever gone into a movie and you sat down, you thought the movie was going to be promising and you watch the movie and you're like, oh my God, what a piece of shit. I can't fucking believe that this even made it onto the screen, right? Have you ever had that experience? Watch yeah. a shitty movie, right? Imagine how many spectacular, fantastic, great movies there are with good acting and amazing story and the hero's journey and all that stuff that never make it to the screen. Why? Distribution. Yeah. So- the trick is to find the distribution like I did with the drug dealers and just provide them with what they want, provide them with what they need. And that's the ultimate hack. And I teach people how to do this every day through my Amazon course, through my other courses, through the people that I coach. But ultimately, you want to think distribution first. So mm. if you're trying to create a better product and then hoping the world will you know, run its way towards you, the internet is the greatest equalizer of all time. Because, dude, if you think you've got a great fucking idea, just Google it. Yeah. And there's 37 and a half million other schmomos who found that exact same idea and done it better. Hmm. And I, this happens to me all the time. I'm like, dude, I've got this great idea for this like thing. And then I go online. I go, fuck, man. 
it's like some dude did it like 20 years ago and failed. And then people have been trying it ever since, right? Oh. So it's the wrong way of thinking. The right way of thinking is start with distribution, right? In life, you can sell one of two things, a product or a service or both, right? Hmm. I don't know if that would count as a third thing. And, you know, really like what I teach my students is that you have to come to, to life, come to the table with excellence. You have to take ownership of your shit. Hmm. And, you know, it's uh, a, another teacher of mine goes by the name of the professor, you know, told me the story about, you know, he would go in, he had a, a big publishing company and he would go in every day or he worked for a big publishing company. And there'd be a guy there who, you know, worked in the back back office packing and shipping packages. And every night after he finished, he'd be vacuuming the carpets, not his job. And so one day after, you know, a year of, of working there, he went up to him and he was like, hey, Joe, or whatever his name was, you know, dude, why are you vacuuming the carpets? And Joe looked at him and he said, oh, buddy, because these are my carpets. I'm going to own this place. You don't know it now, but I will. And so he treated that business like it was his own. And in time, you know, the owner's uh, son went off to school and he got a raise and moved on. And in time, he ended up owning the place, right? But that was the mentality. He took ownership of that. Now, the other component of this is what we talked about before. In a TikTok generation where everybody is has got a 15-minute mindset and everybody wants to get rich quick and everybody wants these, you know, fast ways of making money to work and these things are being touted, you have to step back and you have to think foundational. And this is what we teach, right? Foundational thinking. So, and this is what I've learned over the course of the last, you know, 30 years that I've been succeeding in business is that you have to become bulletproof. And the way you do that is by building foundations, right? One foundation needs to be your work or the money that you have or the savings that you're investing, right? And that could be a job. It could be whatever. People are like, oh, should I quit my job and go full-time selling on Amazon? No. How much money do you have, right? Do you have at least $10,000 that you can burn, preferably $50,000 that you can just burn and never have to think about again, and, and you'll be good and it'll, you can regenerate that fairly quickly? If not, you need fucking Uber. You don't need to, you don't, you, you need a job right? You need to be doing something where you have income coming in. That becomes your pillar until you can replace that with a savings. The second pillar you, you, you should have, and everybody should have, is some type of investment in the stock market. And you can look at that. It can be, you know, now a lot of people are getting involved in crypto has never been really my thing, but you know, any kind of investment in, in stocks or something that has a longer term future. The third pillar should be real estate. You should be working at buying some kind of real estate that brings in recurring revenue. And you, there's tons of people who teach courses on how to do that with $0 and all that kind of stuff. And you can do it. You know, the market's kind of high right now, so it might not be the best time for it. But it's something you can at least start learning about. You can start going to open houses. You can start researching properties on the internet. You can start seeing what you need to do to qualify for other people's money to buy properties, right? And the fourth thing, which I think now is most timely, is having an e-commerce business, right? There's all kinds of things. Again, it can be a service or it can be a product or a combination of the two. Um, you know, we teach people how to create predictable recurring revenue on the Amazon platform, which I think is one of the greatest opportunities since 2009 when Jeff Bezos opened it up to third-party sellers. But that becomes your fourth pillar. You're building this business as your piece of real estate. So what happens? Okay, the stock market crashes, right? Some, some shit happens. Stock market crashes, crypto crashes, whatever. Is your world shaken? No, 
You got your job, right? You can stand on the three other legs. You've got your Amazon business that you built every month. It's bringing you five, 10, 20 grand, right? You've got your uh, real estate investment where somebody's uh, renting out one of your houses and every month paying rent into your mortgage. You're good, right? Real estate crashes. Okay. Well, if you bought right on the real estate, people always need a place to live. Maybe your rent goes down 10%. Maybe. I've never had that happen in all my dealings in real estate, but let's say that happens. You're not that affected, right? Let's say something catastrophic happens, which I doubt it'll happen, but let's say, you know, Amazon, you know, goes down. We got to buy everything in brick and mortar, right? You still have your other pillars. The idea is you need to have these four legs so that you have that security and be able to be able to function. Now, we're not talking about getting rich quick. We are talking about a sound foundational plan, right? One thing is bringing you compound interest. And, you know, and all these things can feed into each other. I take money from my Amazon businesses. I put it in cash flow real estate. I take money from my real estate and the developments that I invest in. I put it in the markets, right? And then it becomes about timing and being smart and learning how to do that, how to compound your interest. And, you know, in years, you become financially stable. And I know it's not sexy. I know we're not like rolling in the, in the Lambos, right? But, you know, you can build a pretty good freaking life where you can do what you want, when you want, with who you want. And that brings us to the ultimate luxury, which is time. Yeah, that's, that's really, really good. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed, if you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. I want to move us into our last section really about networking, but I do want to give a chance. You mentioned the uh, e-commerce business, getting started in Amazon, uh, being able to have that income. And whether or not that's Amazon, that could be a variety of things. People get into Shopify, all these different, all these different areas. For someone who's sitting there going like, that sounds great. Making money online sounds great. I have no idea where to get started. 
what would you say is like the action plan? If someone's going to end this episode, they say, I need to build that pillar. Like maybe I have some of the other things lined up. E-commerce is the area where, you know, I haven't done anything. I'm scared to, don't know where to, where should they get started? Yeah. So that's a great question. So look, we've got a, a mastermind and like a big platinum course. You have to be accepted. And the prerequisite for it is you have to take our introductory class. Good news is the introductory class is absolutely free. It's all you need to sell on Amazon from A to Z. It's a one hour crash course of everything I've learned in the last 12 plus years of selling online in one hour. It takes you from how you start a business and you, like where you incorporate, we have a certain state that we incorporate in that's a, a state, state tax-free state. And then how you start open up the Amazon account, how you select a product, how you get reviews, and where you go from there. So it will get you to starting your Amazon business for little or no money. And that's all you need. You do not need to spend any money, any real money. You need a few hundred bucks to you know, pay the Amazon fees and whatnot. But the course is free. I'm happy to share it with all of your listeners. Absolutely free. I mean, normally we charge 200 bucks for it, but I will give it for free to your, to your students. And um, I think that's a great place to start. You know, take a one-hour course, learn how to sell on Amazon. We've got absolutely nothing to, to sell to you. We also do a podcast where we talk about Amazon and how to, how to start and grow and accelerate on Amazon called Hack and Grow Rich, which I can direct you to. And Amazon itself has Amazon University, which you can go to for free, Seller University, and they'll tell you some basic things about selling on Amazon. Now, of course, you know this and I know this, that the guys making money at the top don't share their secrets. And Amazon is going to tell you how to do it so that you can feed their machine. They want 100 million sellers selling one or two things. They don't want one seller having a bigger piece of the pie than other sellers. So what they teach you, what Amazon teaches you is going to be that. What a lot of other sellers will teach you is stuff to kind of get you in a funnel and keep upcharging you and billing you and selling you other packages. And no, you need personal coaching. And that's, you know, 50,000, 100,000, that kind of thing. You don't need any of that shit to sell on Amazon. You need this one hour course. It's absolutely free. Happy to share it with you. If you think you want to take your Amazon career further than that, you know, reach out to me. I respond to every email personally. Sometimes it takes me some time because we have a big inflow of emails and we can see if you're right for the mastermind or group. But, you know, it's, it's, it's really helpful for a lot of people when they're in a group. Our group's about 100 people and there are different levels of selling on Amazon. And when you can get with other people that are where you're at, and communicate with them with, dude, I've got this freaking problem. Um, what about this, right? I want to sell and I've, no. I've been selling in the US. I got it up to $10,000 a month, but now I want to double that. Do you think I should sell in Canada? And you find somebody who's sold in Canada and they're like, yeah, you can sell in Canada, but you can't sell this, right? So having a mastermind group to work with is, is, is also very helpful. And also having mentorship and coaching like, dude, I wish in the herbal ecstasy days in the, in the 1990s, I had a coach. I might've hung on to a little bit more of that billion bucks than I actually did, you know? Right. Absolutely. Well, that kind of leads me right into my next question with the one that we ask everybody that comes on the show is, do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why? I think your your you know good friend of mine Ken Rutowski who started this group called Metal International, um, which by the way I should get you guys into. You would love it. it. It's a group of high achievers. He always says your your network is your net worth, hmm. and I really do believe that. You know, there is a, a professor I talk about him in my book, Barabasia, I believe is the name, and he wrote a book called The Success Formula, and he talks about the ultimate formula to success, 
which I've kind of abbreviated in part in my book, Billion. And, you know, that exactly is what the ultimate formula to success is. It's performance, right? But in the absence of performance, it's really just network. Mm. So you look at somebody like Basquiat, which is a great example that he used, the great artist, uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat. And he was a homeless kid. He was a homeless kid in New York. I mean, grew up single mom, you know, drugs everywhere, really didn't have any artistic schooling or anything like that. And he hustled and he would not leave Andy Warhol alone until Andy Warhol bought some of his crummy postcards. Mm. And then Warhol bought his postcards. He still didn't leave him alone. He would pound him around New York at every cafe until Warhol said, hey, come on down to the factory. And mm. then he built a network. Now, when you look at art historians, for example, they will tell you that, you know, Basquiat's work is great, fantastic, right? I love Basquiat's work. I've bid on it many times, never won it. Um, they're going in the crazy millions of gajillions of dollars and you're betting against Arabian sheiks and all kinds of people <laughs> these days. So getting anything substantive of his is, is nearly impossible, especially now with all these crypto uh, millionaires bidding against you. But, you know, if you talk to people that are actually intellectuals in the art world, they will tell you that his work doesn't really represent a big leap forward in art. Like, it's not really fantastic in color theory. Like, it's good, but it's not, you know, ahead of anyone else's, right? Mm -hmm. So you look at his, you know, strokes and his, you know, his putting together materials and stuff, and they'll be like, you know, it's pretty basic. So what is it that makes this guy's work worth, you know, 57 million, 100 million, whatever it is that his stuff goes for. And another artist that's competent, that went to school, that has color theory, whose work is, is lauded by his peers, worth $15,000. There's another guy who came up with uh, in that same era, and you can buy one of his pieces for $15,000. Well, the difference is, is network, right? Network amplifies everything that you have. So building that network, you know, creating that network. And so there, there's a couple ways to do that. Way number one is go and work for somebody who's successful and build network from within. The other way to do it is bring up people in your life. People that are below you, you can bring them up. Share opportunities, share experiences. Come up with the people around you, your buddies, right? It's no fun being successful alone. I promise you that. I've tried it. You want to do things that make you successful when you're driven to do that, and then call your buddies over and bring them up in life. You know, if you bring them up enough, they will also succeed. And that builds your network. When they succeed, you succeed. And so the combination of those two things allows you to build a network. Now you have greater amplification of whatever project it is that you're doing. So Eric, you know, if, if you and me decided tomorrow, hey, maybe, maybe you would probably do it better than me, but if um, you and me decide, hey, man, let's do a crypto coin. Let's do an NFT, right? Okay, maybe it would succeed, right? I mean, I know you know a lot of people kind of in those worlds. And, you know, I know a lot of people. Maybe we would do well. But if Elon Musk goes out there and wants to launch an NFT or a, or a crypto coin or whatever, we know it's going to be successful. Why? It's his network. Oh. He is incredibly connected to, to more people. So now you break that down into a microchasm. And, you know, where are you in between that spectrum and how can you get higher up in there? So absolutely, you know, we, we talk about, you know, I talk about in my, in my book, um, the three things that you need in life, right? That my friend Wayne Boss, uh, a millionaire investor taught me knowledge, courage, and action, right? Knowledge, which is what you were talking about, right? What you know, we can buy, 
we can borrow, we can steal, we can rent, right? We can find people that have that generalized knowledge, we can rent it. There's all kinds of ways to get knowledge, right? Once we've acquired that knowledge, what we need to know, it gives us courage, right? If I say, hey, Eric, let's mean you go jump out of a plane right now, you'd be like, Shaheen, you're fucking kidding me, right? You'd be, you'd be scared, I'd be scared, right? You may 20,000 feet jump down from there, you're crazy. But if you and me had spent six months gathering the knowledge of how to safely jump out of a plane, how to pack a parachute, what to do if it doesn't open, and I'm like, Eric, let's go jump, you would have the courage. Mm. You'd be like, Shaheen, let's fucking do it, dude. Me and you, let's go, bro, right? And then let's go for a beer after, right? And which takes us to the third step. Nothing in the world happens without action. Mm. And if you have a powerful network, and there's ways of doing that. And I, I, you know, again, I talk about that in the podcast. I talk about it in my book. Um, I coach people on how you build the network. Um, and there's lots of great ways to do it. Um, we talked about two is probably the quickest way to succeed. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And definitely we should go skydiving because that'd be really good content. <laughs> so uh, I'm down next time you're in Vegas, we'll, uh, we'll go for it. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I think that's really, really solid and really good practical advice for people trying to move forward. And we hit networking, obviously, very hard on a Build Your Network podcast. And it is, it's such a shortcut. And, and I love what you hit on because when people talk about networking, they always talk about reaching above them. Like, how do I connect with Shaheen and like have him pull me up, you know, or how do I connect with an Elon Musk and have him pull me up? Or how do I connect with a Gary Vee or fill in the blank? And I love that you talk about reaching down too and lifting people up with you because one, you don't know where those people are going to end up. You know, there's people that might surpass you and they're going to remember you lent them a hand, but also just putting good out in the world does come back to you. Like I've seen that happen time and time again. And I, I'm really glad you brought that up. I, I know we're getting near the end here. I'm going to transition us here into our final round. Uh, this is our random round. So I'm going to ask you some random questions with some quick answers and, uh, and then we'll wrap up the episode. The first question is what profession other than your own, do you think it'd be fun to attempt? Other than my own, I think it would be fun to attempt being an astronaut. Okay. Awesome. If you could sit on a park bench with someone past or present and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? Jeff Bezos, yep. because I'm currently on the Amazon space and he would be an extraordinarily useful person to know right now. I think he knows the platform a little bit. So he might have some good, uh, some good insights. What's, what's the number one question you'd ask him if you, had a, if you had time to talk to him? What's next for Amazon? Hmm. Where's the trend? Yeah. Uh, how do you like to learn best? Is it books, blogs, podcasts, videos? What's your what's your favorite means of learning? Oh, that's a complicated question. Okay, so I've got a whole system. So I, I used to just read books willy-nil. I don't do that anymore. Mm. So the first thing that I'll do when somebody tells me about um, an, uh, an author is that I will Google them and see if they have done a talk. Google talk, a TED talk. I love TED talks um, somewhere on the internet. And I will listen to that talk. If they inspire me, if they are like a Malcolm Gladwell, love Malcolm Gladwell. If they are like, uh, you know, Chris Voss, um, the FBI negotiator, if they're like one of these speakers whose story impresses me. And as a human being, I have to like them. If they yeah. impress me, then I will move to phase two. Phase two is I will get the notes. There's a bunch of guys. One of my favorite is called Productivity Game. He is awesome. Uh, Nathan, he does a, a YouTube channel called Productivity Game. These guys read all these books and they give you like a seven minute summary of mm. everything in a 400 page book. 
And they're such good uh, people at this. There's another guy who does philosopher's notes, Brian, which is amazing. So I'll listen to these cliff notes. I'll, you know, I'll watch the videos and then usually they have a downloadable PDF that I'll go through. I just did that for a couple books. Hmm. Now, if after that, I feel like I want to deep dive into this, if I'm very impressed, like I was with uh, Richard Koch's new book, Unreasonable Success, or if it is like a canon, like, uh, you know, one of these books that you have to, you know, read, not only read, but incorporate into your life, like David Allen's Getting Things Done, uh, Richard Koch, 80-20 Principle, then I will buy the book. And then I don't speed read anymore. I don't do any of these hacks. I will take my time. I will get some post-it notes, some fucking colored uh, highlighters, and I will sit. And it doesn't matter to me if I read a page a day or 100 pages a day. I will go through that book. and But now my retention is 300% higher. Yeah. Why? Because I've already read the book, right. right? And then the intermediary step to that is I will listen to the Audible book. But mm. I, I feel like you don't get enough. I don't know about you, Eric, but I feel like you don't get the full story just from the Audible book. I feel like when you read the book, it becomes a little bit more a part of your life. I mean, for me at least, yeah. than just the Audible book. No, I agree. And talking about, you talked about being a nerd in school. Like I totally, uh, whenever I use Audible, I'm generally reading along with the author with a paperback book. <laughs> so oh, no way. I, 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 yeah. So I've, I've done that with a couple, especially books that I'm really struggling to like understand, which is, you know, sometimes you'll go through a book. You're like, I know this is good, but I'm just like, feel like I'm struggling. Like I'll, I'll play the, the Audible and then read along. Like I'm in class, like I'll be reading through the book, but I have to be able to underline Ben pages, like People get mad about bending pages, but I have to be able to dog ear, highlight, write notes in the margin. I, I have to do that stuff. I can't do Kindle. I, I I have to have a physical book in my hand for sure. But uh, yeah. yeah, give us give us a glimpse of your uh, morning routine. What's that look like for you? Oh, amazing. Okay. So, you know, I wake up in the morning and I will do about 20 minutes of Wim Hof breathing, hmm. right? If my, if my seven-year-old is up, we'll cuddle, read a book, you know, play Minecraft, whatever it is he wants to do because family first, always, yeah. forever, right? So the greatest thing in the world is being a father and having a seven-year-old is a spectacular <laughs> journey. 100% um, agree. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any kids? I have a one four-year-old. So oh, totally so fun. Yeah, cool age. So fun. Yeah. So, you know, if he's up, you know, we'll do cuddles, we'll read, you know, whatever, whatever he wants to do, right? Legos, origami, whatever, right? From there, I'll do my 20 minutes of Wim Hof breathing, right? And I will um, sit while I do my meditation. He'll do his breath holds. So he does, mm. um, we take a breathing. So he'll do, which is a little bit better suited for kids. I wouldn't have kids do Wim Hof. From there, I'll do a little bit of red light therapy. And then I'll go for a cold dip. After the cold dip, I'll usually do about two to three hours of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which I love, um, grappling on the mats. From there, I will have a little bit of lunch. So now we're probably around two o'clock. Um, don't eat until two, intermittent fasting. Two o'clock, I'll have a little bit of lunch, high-protein meal, usually paleo. And then I'll go for three minutes of cryotherapy. Um, well, I'll go into the chamber, sub minus 230 degrees for three minutes. Feels spectacular. And a little bit of, little bit of red light therapy. And then I'm ready to take on the day. And then, you know, I'll uh, have a meeting with my staff. And in between all the stuff, I take phone calls. Um, you know, if I have meetings, I'll do it. I had three meetings today from the jacuzzi, which is just kind of the, the lifestyle that I've always wanted to have, which is amazing, right? My kid's in the jacuzzi. I'm in the jacuzzi just chilling. 
And, you know, I'm talking yeah. to big companies. Zoom made that more difficult because now they want to see you. And right. it's, it's in some cases with big corporations, not the best look to be in the jacuzzi when there's a boardroom of people on the other end. Yeah. But I figured that out too. I have a loop that I play sometimes. That's just me going like this. <laughs> um, the only time it gets weird is when I'm talking because the audio doesn't sync. But, you know, I'll do that. And then, you know, um, my staff is very competent. They, you know, can run the company. Usually my role now is coaching my staff. Mm. So I will coach them. And then I move on to my Amazon students and courses. I make my phone calls, make sure everybody's in line with the goals that they're setting for themselves, making the money they want to set. And then I'll do interviews with, you know, folks like you. You know, I just did uh, Adam Carolla's show yesterday, cool. which was super exciting. And we've got a few other big shows, TV, radio, podcasts lined up. And uh, now, you know, I'm, I'm actually, it's good that we talked about it because I'm reading my Audible book. And I wanted to ask your opinion on this. So I'm doing the read myself. I hired a professional voice actor to do it. And every single person I talked to yeah. said, do not, you got to read it yourself. Chicken. Yeah. I, I, it's my, it's one of my biggest pet peeves. And I've read a lot of books because of podcasting, like for, for my other show, for this show, like, and it's, I, I hate listening to someone else tell someone else's story. Like it's, I love it. Even if it's not as polished a voice, like I'd much rather hear the actual author. Cause you get the emotion, you get like all of that comes through. So please do it yourself. That would be, that'd be awesome. Okay. I, I appreciate your advice. I'm going to go with that. Yes. Awesome. Cool. And then um, what is your go-to pump up song? Oh man. All right. So this is going to be funny. Rick Ross blowing money fast. What's yours? That's, I mean, it, I mean, anything by ice cube gets me pumped. Uh, any, you know, any NWA ice cube, like, I mean, yeah. Biggie, I mean, any, any, any like nineties rapper hip hop will get me, get me in the mood. So I usually just go to that made for you section on Spotify and just play the rap one. And it plays you some of my best, best hits in my, in my Spotify playlist. So oh, I, I love that. But now that you got your four-year-old, oh. you probably won't be able to listen to NWA. Now it's the secret life of pets uh, soundtrack <laughs> in the morning. Welcome to New York. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, what's something that you're not very good at? Man, I, you know, I'm very good at a very narrow band of things and the majority of other things I am an abject failure. So I'm, I'm just picking through a mental list right now of things that I really suck at. One is following recipes. Mm. Um, I am a get the fucking thing done. Like now, like, you know, steak, I'm great at cooking. You throw it on, you put butter, you got steak, anything that goes beyond two steps. Don't, don't talk to me about it. That's my wife. Gotcha. Gotcha. And last question we've talked about a little bit. We'll put links to all this stuff, but what's the best place for people to find you online? If they're listening right now, they want to connect with you. What's the best place to do that? Yeah, guys, um, check out the Hack and Grow Rich podcast. We're on Stitcher, uh, uh, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, anywhere you go. And also, you know, Billion is up, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. Um, if you want to learn about selling on Amazon, just go to shaheenshan.com. They'll share the link with you. Reach out to me by email or through the contact form on there. And I get back to every single person individually. And, you know, the course for any of your listeners, if they just mentioned the podcast, will be absolutely free for the one-hour crash course. And that's the best way to get a hold of us. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for jumping on the show. Really appreciate it. Yeah, honored to be a part of it. It's been super fun. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to TravisChapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. 
Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.